Hey listeners, today's episode deals with the topics of rape, racial, and transphobic violence. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to those topics ahead of the episode, and to let you know that resources are listed on the website. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime, and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Sounded like a very muffled clap on your end. Did it? It did. Well, it did to me, but. Well, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> we'll move past <laughs> it. It'll be fine. Our friendship will survive. Uh, I hope so. Otherwise, <laughs> it might be the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you guys uh, stop recording? How's... Well, we had a fight well, over we a, clapped badly. a clap. <laughs> yep. What um? What's new? How are you? You know, um, I'm trudging through it i'm getting yeah. through it it's been a long couple of weeks yeah same <laughs> right but it is my favorite season <sighs> and it is beautiful out over here i have to say the weather is insane in the mornings i check when it's cold out here to see what is it like over in santa barbara and um, it's cold yeah it's 20 degrees warmer by you <laughs> yeah on average yeah, yeah, yeah. in the but mornings <laughs> It's still cold for me. Yeah, cold for you. Wah, wah. <laughs> Listen, I didn't choose to move to New Jersey, so. No, I love it. Davey is having a hard time, but I, so I far, love it. But I know that January, I'm going to be like, who doggy? <laughs> <laughs> Gotta start saving up for that summer house, or I guess winter house? I guess. So Real Housewives of Beverly Hills is now over. Honestly? You know I have been Switzerland with Erica more now, than most people. I was really yes. hoping that this would be her moment to re- these four reunions. Four-part episode, yeah. I like a long reunion. They could have done this in three. Um, oh, for sure. I She didn't do herself any favors. Boy, did she not. She came off as extremely unlikable. Oh, my gosh. I The benefit of the doubt that I was giving her... I mean, I still don't think she was in on it, obviously. I don't think she knew what Tom was doing exactly, but damn, she really just comes off as nasty, unapologetic. Mm-hmm. She's still saying alleged victims. Right. Ah, ah, come and on. And I guess probably, she probably has to for legal reasons, I bet, but mm. the whole thing where Crystal was like, we haven't seen you be angry with Tom, and she screams at Crystal, like, am I angry enough now? And it's like, but... Not with Tom. You're right. you're screaming at me. <laughs> right. And the point that everyone has been saying online, and I'm glad Andy brought it up in the, at least the fourth episode, was like, why would anyone talk to you about any of this when look how you get when anyone talks to you? Right. And she's like, well, how do you expect me to get? It's like, but then you have to understand why people wouldn't talk to you about it. <laughs> like, right. it's circular, yes. and she doesn't seem to understand that. And she only <sighs> apologized to Crystal because the optics of it, because everyone basically told her she had to. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yikes. Wow. Yikes. More to come on that, I guess, <sighs> next season, but I kind of don't even yeah. care. Like I'm I I care. I'm interested. I'm invested. I'm invested, but Erica I'm just team Sutton all the way. <laughs> Me too. I love Sutton. Total Sutton stan as the kids say. A Sutton head. <laughs> Sutton head. <laughs> Um, my only other thing is that also there is now a Real Housewives of Dubai that is coming out in winter, maybe? I'm excited. I'm I'm into it. I'm 
I'm curious to see what it's like. I've never seen a single International Housewives uh, franchise because I've I've never been able to find Melbourne mm-hmm. or I guess is is Melbourne the only one? That's like the main one, but there's a couple others that are popular. I can't think of them right now. I think there's one somewhere in the UK. Hmm. I'm interested. It's weird that they they keep touting it as the first International Housewives. But there's like twelve, or I looked online and there's like fifteen. <laughs> but I guess it's the first one like that they're creating from the U.S. or like created by the U.S. I Bravo. I don't know. How, whatever. Yeah. I'm into it. Just further saying, I'm getting through Vanderpump because I feel like I have to, but I <laughs> continuously cannot stand like ninety percent of the cast. And I mean, that's kind of all really awful. That's kind of always (laughs) been the allure of it. Like somehow it's like one of those shows where you you hate the people kind of, but you're invested in them. And, you know, at least they're kind of funny and interesting. Now that they've gotten rid of the funny or interesting. Yeah, they've gotten rid of the funny and interesting ones. And the stuff with Brock is terrible. Like he's Uh, full on terrible. Like the whole problem with the show is you got like a group of extremely vapid narcissistic 20 year olds who are now like 40 mm-hmm. and they uh, like they're <laughs> the way that yeah anyway it's just it's they're it's not entertaining and i'll just say it one well, again tom sandoval is te- like full on the worst the worst absolute nightmare i used to enjoy him oh my gosh it's become like look at my look at i've never seen a more narcissistic person on TV, and that's saying a lot because I watch a lot of <laughs> Bravo. So yeah, I oh yuck, he's just every episode more and more terrible. Yikes! But I keep watching. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, should we get into the actual episode? Oh, I have one recommendation, real quick. I've yes. recommended this on our other podcast, Cool Story. So if you haven't listened and you like us here, check out our other podcast, Cool Story. Uh, we're mm-hmm. going through the Wheel of Time series, which, oh my gosh, I cannot wait for Yeah, every time I see a, a trailer for the TV show coming out. <gasps> I'm just Ugh. like losing my mind. I just saw one in the wild for the first time. Like I was watching, I think, Project <laughs> Runway and uh, Wheel of Time preview came up and I was like, oh my god. Oh yeah, they play it on the Bravo app a lot. They play it a lot. Oh, okay. So you'll see it more. I'm excited, but uh, I just wanted to, again shout out this instagram slash maker shop um the instagram is at ali palmer art and that's ali a-l-i and then palmer art and she just makes really really adorable enamel pins all handmade they're so cute there's so many different themes if you like enamel pins you have to check out her stuff the most recent one she made is a uh, the one I got really excited about, which I feel like I'm almost psychic for, because I feel like we were talking about this in a recent episode <laughs> somewhere. Mm-hmm. She made a Candyland-themed uh, set of pins. Oh, did you get, like, Mrs. Kringle or whatever? Well, th- she made... Grandma's Kringles? I, mean, <laughs> I think her name, I think it's, like, Grandma Brittle Nut or something like that. <laughs> but I was more excited, obviously, about Queen Frostine, because I just... From the moment I was a little gay boy and saw Queen Frostine, I knew that was the pinnacle of who I wanted to be. <laughs> that was the future for you. Yes. Now, I 
I realize that we usually talk about video games on our other podcast, but I just want to mention that I recently saw that there is a new Mario Rabbids game coming out on the Switch in like February, I think, and it features Rosalina and a Rosalina Rabbid character. So I know you never played the first one, did you? I played the Rayman Rabbids games, but I never played the Mario Rabbids crossover, but I would love to because I was obsessed (laughs) <laughs> with yeah. the Rayman It's Rabbids one of my game. favorite games. I think it's so much fun. Ooh, um, I'll have to get and that. so I'm excited for the new one to be coming out. You know, I'm a Rosalina head. <laughs> yep, I do know that. <laughs> Oof. All right, well. Here we go. Here we go. I'm Matt. That's N. <laughs> and the, welcome to Rip from the Headlines. So this is, ep- this is our episode nine, but it's the eighth episode of Law & Order's season three, mm. and it's titled Point What? It's not... Oh. Because we released a Patreon episode. Oh, I see. Episode. I see. Yes, yes. Hmm. Okay. Don't you... Don't contradict no, me. No, but it's our tenth episode. <laughs> oh, fuck. And it's okay, their fine. ninth episode. <laughs> All right. What? Is it? Is I'm that true? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Oh, God. Okay, well, whatever. It's an episode. Here we go. It's called Point of View. So <laughs> this episode opens on Beat Cops. So I get a point. You Please note, notate that. I did. I did. Also, I think you might get a point because it also kind of opens on a man and a woman on the street. Well, number one, the Beat Cops are arguing with each other about something really dumb. Mm-hmm, and true. then there's like a man and a woman on the street who are arguing. So y- I think you might be able to give yourself a point as well. Oh, thank you. I was wondering if I would get that point. I'll take it. Well, I happen to be generous. So. Uh, and I happen to be... <laughs> Miserly. That's, that's the word. <laughs> so the cops uh it's a man and a woman cop and they're arguing about this couple that they see arguing on the street the woman says that she thinks uh the woman is trying to lose the guy the male cop says like no she's putting out scent yeah what there are so many i literally have multiple bullet points with just all capitals what? Uh, because there are a number of lines like that in this episode. So many times my jaw just hit the ground. <laughs> yeah. So the gross man cop says, uh, should we loan them a few bucks for a room? Uh, but then he decides they should just drive off because he thinks it's not not worth bothering them, wasting their time. And, and he wanted to go have a break, we learn later. Mm-hmm. Have a donut. So they drive a few... <laughs> Yeah, they literally drive a, a few minutes away and go and have a donut, and then they hear over the radio a call about a shooting. We cut back to the scene where the beat cops had just left, and all of the police are there, including Logan, who, one of the cops is like, you working solo tonight? Because remember, in the, uh, the previous episode. episodes, Soretta, or maybe even the one before that, I don't know, Soretta had gotten shot. Mm-hmm. So, they find, somebody shouts like, look at this, and he holds up a bullet, and then, as though he had risen from a crypt, from a literal cloud of fog, (laughs) emerges Lenny Briscoe. Am I wrong? He literally, it's like he he formed out of the fog in this episode. It was truly wild. He literally came and appeared out of the ether, like it was... Saying, it was so dramatic. Saying like it was out of a crypt is absolutely the perfect way to have said it. 
Thank you. So if you've listened to our Patreon, I refer to him as Detective Toothpaste Hair because his hair looks like a little coral, like a little curl of aqua fresh mm-hmm. on a toothbrush. It was less aqua freshy in this episode, I will say. So maybe it kind of evolves over time. I think it is. He's like a Pokemon. And right now he's in like the, the first evolution. The early... it's, yeah. it's not yeah. till he, he evolves that you get like the real. The full. Yeah. The real harsh Experience. line. Yeah. The little Morticia Adams, <laughs> whatever it is. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so he shouts to like put back the bullet exactly where you found it. And we learn that Briscoe is Logan's new partner. And already they're kind of at odds because as we remember, Logan is extremely prickly anytime he gets a new partner. So he has to be extremely prickly to Briscoe. Not that Briscoe is making it particularly easy to like him either. Mm-hmm. So we get the title sequence, and since I knew I had a few minutes, I just went to the DMV, uh, no appointment, just decided to stand in a few lines for fun, and then after a while I figured it's probably time, and sure enough, the title sequence was ending. (laughs) That sounds about right. Right? So... When they had found the man's body, they discovered that in his jacket pocket were tickets to a gym, I guess it's a boxing gym, and... I have never, I I mean, obviously I do not follow boxing, but do gyms sell tickets? Is that a thing? I thought it It was mystifying to me. It was very confusing to me too. They're like, oh, tickets to a gym. He must be a something fan. I was like, what? (laughs) A boxing head. But he's a boxing head? (laughs) Yeah. Box head. So... So they head down to the gym and are showing folks his picture, trying to see if anybody knows him, including to a man a man who is named Doc, who, by the way, talks like he has socks stuffed inside his mouth because I could not understand anything that man said. And I rewound it a couple of times. He was like in the ring and he was like blah, 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 at them when they asked him a question, but they got something out of it. I don't know how they did. It was literally like... Uh, a Muppet that was meant to be speaking yes. like a, a, a false language. <laughs> yes, like a Peanuts character <laughs> adult. <laughs> so I was able to catch that he identifies this man as Tommy Duff, and Logan says something about him having offended Al Sharpton, but I, again, tried to rewind it, but the dialogue in this scene was very hard to understand, so I still don't know why Al Sharpton was brought up, but hey. I mean, why so not, I guess. They're trying <laughs> they're trying to figure out why this man might have been murdered, this Tommy Duff character. And so they're asking, like, you know, did he like to gamble? Did the bookie were the bookies looking after him? But no. Um, they kind of point the detectives toward Tommy's wife, who is a waitress at a local diner. So they head over there, and his wife is kind of like if you had a sentient cable knit sweater that is how i would describe her outfit kind of like do you remember uh cousin it from the adams family but instead of hair it's a cable knit sweater oh i like that character i can let's let's make that character (laughs) (laughs) will do um so they head over there da 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 cable knit sweater she tells logan that she and tommy had been split up for about 10 years but they had never really filed the divorce paperwork you know i haven't seen him in a while blah 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 But she tells Logan and Briscoe that he was kind of a sport, which I guess is lingo for being like a a womanizer. Which I thought was strange, And she's, Yeah, I've never heard that before. It feels like something from the 1920s. Mm -hmm. 
And they ask if she has an alibi for last night when her husband was killed. And she (laughs) says like 85 different religious words and terms. And I just took that to mean that she had like a meeting with the Pope. But (laughs) it seems to be pretty credible because they believe her. Yeah, I heard Monsignor and that was the only one that (laughs) stuck out to me. (sighs) And of course. Of course, when I heard Monsignor, it immediately took me back to that hellscape of Midnight Mass. So ridiculous. (laughs) Love Midnight Mass. (laughs) Well, congratulations. So she says she didn't really know what her husband did for work, and, and she had to chase him down periodically for spousal support. And they're like, okay, well, do you know where he worked? And she says, yeah, in that, her direct quote is, yeah, in that building next to the Norwegian sailor's home. Oh, that building. What? <laughs> what, what does that even mean? You know, the Norwegian is sailor's there a, home. Is that specifically for a home for Norwegian sailors? They have one on every corner these days. Okay. It's like the Christian science reading room and next to it is the Norwegian sailor's home. Sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So they head over there, and I guess the building manager says Tommy used to sell liquor and cigarettes to bars all over the city, and it kind of seems like maybe this wasn't on the up and up, because when they ask where he got the liquor and cigarettes, he says, guys in vans would drop it off at night. (laughs) And Logan spots a, like, whiteboard, which appears to be a schedule of deliveries, and they say... They see the name of a bar named PJ Smith's, which is on the street right by where Tommy was killed. So they're thinking, like, maybe somebody there knows what happened. Okay, here's a moment where I I have to backtrack. They did actually go to this bar earlier, but they didn't get any helpful information. And it didn't seem like it was actually part of the plot, so I didn't mention it until now. But this is actually their second visit to talk to this bartender. Mm -hmm. But... He says he didn't see or hear anything. Um, And Logan and Briscoe said, uh, maybe maybe he didn't see anything because he doesn't want bad press for the bar. Like, you know, one of his patrons was killed right outside. And by the way, they really wanted to make everybody know this was an Irish pub. They had like an Irish flag. They had a a sign, a street sign that said Uh Irish parking only behind his head. Oh my God. (laughs) And they had a thing above that said free Joe Doherty. And that was from a previous episode that you covered, I think, when you did the... um... Yeah, I forgot about Joe Doherty. I know. They were really making it clear. Davey was like, are they going to put a pot of gold in the rainbow as they walk out? (laughs) Well, there are are multiple other Irish moments in this episode, but I am shocked Davey sits there and watches these with you, to be honest. It's been a while. This is the first one he's watched with me in a while. (laughs) Yeah. He fell asleep. (laughs) (laughs) So at this point, Briscoe and Logan are theorizing that maybe Tommy was connected, aka part of the mob. Why they think this, I don't yet know. I guess maybe because of the illegal cigarettes and alcohol thing, maybe. I guess. But Logan, or the other one, Briscoe says he carried a bag for Jimmy Scanlon. And Briscoe says... Oh, the Jimmy Scanlon who cooks bubbles and squeak for half the city councilmen in town? <laughs> what is going on? I, I been... swear to God, it's like the writers took some heavy bong rips before <laughs> they started writing this episode. I have been saying this from like season one. There is somewhere in the writing room a corner that is actually black and white and has a like Marx Brothers type looking character who like throws <laughs> these things in because I I don't know why. They always throw in these weird 19, 1920s, like, noir <laughs> cop <Yes>. dialogue. <laughs> Listen, I thought, you were, 
I thought when you were gonna say in the corner of the uh, writer's room, I was thinking like there's maybe a gas leak. Like that <laughs> might explain some of these lines a little bit. Anyway, we learn Jimmy Scanlon is essentially kind of like a mob boss. He's been indicted on racketeering multiple times, but no convictions because essentially he has a bunch of the city councilmen in his pocket. Mm-hmm. So we cut to the Scanlon Trucking Company offices and. Again, as I said, they're supposed to be part of the Irish mob. Strangely, though, Scanlon has no Irish accent, mm-hmm. but his associate in this scene is doing his best Lucky Charms impression. He's like, oh, eh, boyo. <laughs> it's very weird. That very. was bad also. Oh, that was a bad Irish accent, but his wasn't much better. Mm-mm. But he says that he didn't, uh, Scanlon says that he didn't really know Tommy and, quote, he wasn't one of my elves. Are you Santa Claus, sir? I what is going they made some kind of weird Santa that, Claus reference. It didn't. It didn't yeah. stick, and then they tried to really take it home. Shoehorn in some elves. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Back at the station, Logan and Briscoe have a prickly little back and forth because Briscoe's sitting in Soretta's desk, and Logan is like, "Mar, mar, mar! He's gonna be back," you know, shaking his finger at Briscoe. Mm-hmm. Craigan comes over and says that he just got a phone call from a city councilman who gave him an earful about how wonderful Jimmy Scanlon is and don't you dare look at him, blah, blah, blah. So this is presumably one of the politicians that's in Jimmy's pocket. Mm-hmm. And they debate how this looks like a mob hit. And then Briscoe makes some offensive generalizations and uses some choice words about Italians, Latinx people, and Irish folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Because I guess he just wanted to make sure to cover all his bases when it came to being offensive. Mm -hmm. But in a rare moment of, like, decency on this show, Cragen looks at him and says, maybe this time tomorrow you can come up with something better than ethnic slurs. I was... So, hey, at least they pointed it out. I was impressed. (laughs) I was impressed. So, Briscoe finds the records of the beat cops who had been the part of the opening scene, and we learn that they had reported very different times of when they had originally passed by the bar. So, their stories didn't match up, and Logan and Briscoe pull them into an interview room to talk to them. They put some pressure on them, and the woman cop has some integrity and tells them that they saw Tommy before he got shot, and... They saw him chasing the woman, but they disagree about whether or not it was an innocent exchange, and she thinks that the woman was scared, the guy cop thinks that it was just innocent, and whatever. So, then we get a scene where Logan goes to visit Soretta in the hospital, and he calls him Big Daddy again, just because we hadn't vomited enough already. And Logan's like, oh, you'll be up and around in no time. But Soretta's like, I'm actually not coming back to the force. I had some nerve damage. I won't be at 100%. And uh, (laughs) he talks about how he is getting a desk job, which is, I guess, going to give him a raise and it'll take him off the, the streets. So Logan's bummed, but kind of gets it. And in walks Soretta's wife. And Matt, I have to ask you, did you ever see the movie Mars Attacks? You know what? I just watched it pretty recently for the first time. Uh, her hair looked exactly <laughs> like the aliens in Mars Attacks. She it's could have been so hiding <laughs> a nuclear weapon under her hair. It was so big. It could have been a drag queen wig. That's how big this hair was. She was like and it, Gwen it, like, Shamblin. Yeah, it was immobile, too. It was just this big, big helmet of hair. It was high. Anyway. It was, it was, closer, it was, it was close so to God. <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> so she's happy that Soretta is going to be doing desk work. Logan's sad. And that's, I think, literally maybe the last time we ever see Soretta. Mm-hmm, I think so. In the next scene, Logan and Briscoe head to do some accounting firm, head to an accounting firm to talk to a man who, for some reason, they've been able to connect him to having been at the bar that night. How they did that is unclear. Mm-hmm. But he says that he saw Tommy, and he saw him speaking to a woman who had come in alone. And then he says that the woman had a good figure, and then he calls his own wife fat, and says that he sent the woman a drink, but she sent it back to him with a nasty look. Poor guy. (laughs) So, before he left the bar, he saw Tommy, he saw this woman kissing Tommy by the men's room. So they track down this woman, who is played by Carolyn Aaron, who is a pretty well-known character actress who's been in, like, everything. Um, I know her best as the mom from The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And since we didn't get her character's name at any point that I caught, I will be referring to her as Marvelous Mommy Maisel, or Triple M, throughout the episode. (laughs) Okay. So she does not remember much of the night because I guess she was real drunk. And so when, and their favorite thing to do, they just show her a photo of Tommy's murder scene. And she's like, oh, I didn't know him. But she doesn't remember much of that night. But she does say that she saw Tommy with a blonde woman who was not very pretty, but she had really good makeup, like a model or an actress. (laughs) And they went into the ladies' room together, and she complimented the woman's makeup, and she says that the woman bragged that it was Jacques Dussange, which I have never heard of in my life. I think they fictionalized it. I don't know who they were trying to make it be, but it's probably like Yves Yves Saint Laurent or something. You know, they're trying to do some... Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So they head over to the Jacques Toussange salon where this woman apparently got her makeup done. And of course, when we get there, we get the standard executive woman in the beauty (laughs) industry who has like a vague Madonna-esque British accent talking about how amazing their salon is. And they badger her into giving them her clients' records. But all this place keeps are before and after photos of their clients. So they take those photos and bring it to the marvelous Mommy Maisel, who (laughs) says that she saw her at the bar, um, or saw the woman at the bar. But when they show her the photos, she doesn't really really recognize any of the women in the photos, any of the clients. But when Cragen walks in, he says, we found traces of Jacques Dussange makeup on Tommy's face. How did they but, know that, by the way? How honestly, did they know it was, it was Jacques, such a stretch. What kind of police test tells you the brand yeah, of makeup? Yeah, forensic <laughs> chemical analysis. <laughs> oh, this is the Maybe Jacques, they just Jacques matched Jacques. the color of lipstick. They're like, mm, this is lip smackers. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Pepper flavored. <laughs> so... Because Triple M didn't see the woman in the book of client photos, everyone suddenly goes, maybe she wasn't a client. Maybe she was one of the Jacques Dussange employees. So Logan Briscoe and Triple M head down there, and she immediately walks in the door and says, that's her. And they run over to this woman. Her name is Mary Kostrinsky. And they, they tell her she's under arrest, and she says, can I call an attorney? Okay. I so, don't want to yes, be rude, go ahead. but they made such a big deal about how amazing this woman's makeup was and how it was I mean, flawless. 
this maybe is, for the nineties. Uh, this is not a, a dig at her. It's a dig at the makeup team. Maybe I thought they were going to uh. really make her look like she was wearing flawless makeup. Out of this world, she pretty. looked like maybe any other maybe woman. she doesn't do it at work. Uh, I mean, we see her a lot of times throughout the episode. That's true. I You're was right. not ever feeling like, oh, this is a woman who's wearing exceptional makeup. As she was, she looked yeah. like Doctor Olivet. She looked beautiful, pretty. She really did look like Doctor Olivet. Yeah. So the next scene is a lineup, and here is where we meet Mary's lawyer, who is played by Elaine Stritch, who oh. again has been in everything. Mm-hmm. I know her best as Mrs. Donaghy from Thirty Rock or mm-hmm. Donaghy. I don't remember how they pronounce their name. I also read that she won an Emmy for her guest spot in this episode. Yes, she did. Unreal. I mean, she was great. Good for her. Yeah. She was really good. I like that actress, too. She, I, she has a voice that I would like to listen to books on tape by her, because it's just a very distinctive voice. It you know? was. She was giving me very, like, Angela Lansbury, Murder, She Wrote vibes. Yeah. Yeah. Very that. So... Even though she's complaining about the quality of the lineup, both of the officers immediately identify Mary Kostrinsky. And despite Elaine Stritch trying to get all of this discredited, Briscoe walks over and says that they found fingerprints on the shell casing, that the one that they found at the scene, and it matches Mary's fingerprints. So not looking great for Mary at this point. Mm. So now we turn over to the order side. And Elaine Stritch and Stone and Robinette are talking a plea deal, but Elaine says it was all self-defense and that um, he had tried to rape her and that she had shot him in self-defense. She had tried to leave, but he followed her, and when he grabbed her, she shot him. Stone heads over to Schiff's office, and they basically debate whether or not they have enough evidence to win a case against Mary for the murder of Tommy Duff, because they don't really believe that this was a case of self-defense. Schiff wants Stone to drop the case, but Robinette walks in and drops the bombshell that there was no gunpowder on Tommy's clothes, which means that Mary Kostrinsky had to be at least four feet away from him when she shot him, which doesn't sound like... He grabbed me and I shot him. So some holes in the story. And by the way, I get another point because this is another case that Schiff does not want them to take, but that Stone insists on taking anyway. True. Good point. Good point. So they bring Mary in to talk with Dr. Olivet about her, at this point, I'm just going to say alleged assault. And Dr. Olivet tells Stone and Robinette that her behavior appears to be consistent with the story that she told, that she you know, appears to have been somebody who survived a traumatic assault. And and so she also tells them, like, I'm not going to be helpful to you as an expert witness because I think Mary's actions were justified. But they bring the course to Kate, they bring the case to court anyway. So they put the two cops on the stand and we are literally getting a he said, she said, because the woman cop says that she thought that the woman looked like she was scared or in danger, but the man cop says that he thought everything looked fine. The woman cop says she was concerned about the woman's safety, and in retrospect, she would have stopped and made inquiries if her partner hadn't stopped her. They also put the bartender on the stand, and we learn a weird piece of information that Mary, when she was in the bar, had asked the bartender what time it was every half hour. And so Stone and Robinette start to wonder if this was intentional, like maybe she was at the bar waiting for Tommy to arrive, and this was all planned, after all. But they hit a complicating factor when the files given to the prosecution during discovery 
had Dr. Olivet's findings mixed in. And so now the defense is calling Dr. Olivet as a witness who she can claim that she believes that Mary's actions were justified and based on a true accounting of the events. So on the stand, she does just that, says that Mary's behavior was entirely appropriate and her emotions were consistent with somebody who was about to be raped. But Stone asks her if her assessments ever have any small element of subjectivity, and she says, like, yes, they can, Um, but my professional training always allows me to. But Stone interrupts her and says, isn't it true, Dr. Olivet, that you yourself have been raped? And he's using this to undermine her as an expert witness, and she's excused from the stand, and... Stone, thankfully, I think, feels really scummy about having done this, at least, but uh, he feels that Mary is about to get away with murder, and so he doesn't want to let her go. Mm -hmm. So they go and dig a little more into Mary's life, and they discover that at her apartment building, the manager, I guess, of the apartment building says that she bought her apartment just after the murder happened, that she had gotten a mysterious $40,000 gift that helped her buy it. I'd like a $40,000 gift. Uh, yeah. I mean, not for killing somebody, but still, I would love $40,000 to just show mm. up on my bank account. So the person who gave her this gift was one of the senior members of mobster Larry Scanlon's organization. So Stone tells Elaine Stritch, who is Mary's lawyer, that her client is lying to her. And so Elaine Stritch kind of cooperates with Stone and Robinette and is basically like, all right, let's let's get a plea deal going for her because I don't want to continue this case and I'm not going to allow her to go on the stand and perjure herself now that I know this. And she tells Mary, like, you need to take the plea because I am not going to make a closing argument on your behalf. I am not going to put you on the stand to tell your story. And so you can try to take your chances that the jury won't think you're guilty, but I think you should take the plea deal. Integrity. Yeah. And Stone tries to get her to tell them that Jimmy Scanlon had ordered the hit, and eventually she does, and so they're able to arrest Scanlon for the murder of Tommy Duff. And the episode kind of ends with a little scene between Logan and Briscoe, and Logan is finally kind of nice to Briscoe and accepts that he's going to be his new partner. And that's the end of episode something of season three, (laughs) Point of View. Well done. Thank you. It was a pretty good episode. It wasn't. I mean, Elaine Stritch really made it, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. Well, are you ready to hear what this episode was based on? I am ready. Well, too bad, because it was based on nothing. (laughs) 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 Which I have to say, we'll get more into this when we rate the episode. While I like the episode, I do think it is obviously based on nothing, because... The narrative of women claiming <laughs> sexual assault in order to uh, better them, like benefit them in some way when it's not true, right? Is dangerous. It is grossly untrue. Yeah. And while it made for an interesting storyline in an episode, it didn't surprise me that I could not find a case <laughs> with that same narrative. Shocking. Shocking. Yeah. Huh? <sighs> so, um, I tried to pick something that had. A few threads that kind of were comparative, but that focused on communities that don't generally get a lot of exposure when something happens to them. So yeah. this is going to be the story of Kai Peterson, and it's more recent. It's within the last 
couple decades. Can I just say fans. also when I was wa- when I was trying to remember if I was the recapper or the researcher this week, I looked at the description of the episode and I was like, oh my god, it's another mob one. And I feel like I always, I always get the mob ones. You do, you do. I avoided the mob angle. Okay, completely. <laughs> um, and so this this story is going to be about a member of the trans community. Okay. So, Kai Peterson was born in 1991, and from what I can tell, grew up in or near Georgia, where the rest of the story is going to take place. Okay. He has at least two brothers, and according to his mother, he has some sisters as well, but they don't really get mentioned in any of the articles, just sort of peripherally. So, on October 28, 2011, now 20 years old, Kai left a convenience store in town. This is in uh, Americus, Georgia. Hmm. And he began walking home when a man that he didn't recognize started hitting, ho- started hitting on him outside on the sidewalk. Okay. He sort of brushed it off. Um, it wasn't the first time he'd been hit on by someone he didn't want to be hit on by. So he kind of continued on, continued on his way towards the trailer court where he and his mom resided together. It was really late at night, and suddenly, from behind, he felt something strike him on the back of his head Mm. and blacked out. After regaining consciousness, he found himself in one of the abandoned trailers in the trailer court, and the stranger from before that was hitting on him was now on top of him, and he was being raped. The stranger was shouting homophobic slurs at him, um, and Kai stated that he freaked out and started screaming, and was screaming and defending himself as his rapist was fighting him. They struggled against one another, and he was wondering to himself if the man was going to kill him, Mm -hmm. and if he could get to the door in time. Suddenly, he hears some familiar voices outside calling his name, and he knows that it's the voices of his brothers screaming his name. Uh, The three of them had been at the convenience store together. It's like the, the kind of convenience store that's at the end of the trailer court, so when you first enter it, it's like the the general store there. So I have a question. they hung out there pretty regularly. You mm-hmm. you keep using a phrase that I'm not familiar with, trailer court. Is, th- is that different from like a trailer park? I think it's like the same thing. Okay. So soon he started shouting back to his brothers outside and I guess they identified where he was and they burst into the trailer and they were able to get the assailant off of Kai. So now Kai is st- struggled to stand up on one side of the trailer with his two younger brothers flanking him and his attacker was just, you know, just nearby after they had gotten him off of him. And the guy started charging towards them. Mm. And according to an article in The Advocate, Peterson made a decision he'd hoped he'd never have to. So Kai pulls out a gun from his backpack and pulls the trigger. This was the first time he'd ever, have to, he'd ever had to use the gun. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is precisely the type of situation that led him to purchasing one in the first place. This was the second time Kai had been raped in his own neighborhood, and the last time he reported it to the police and was not taken seriously. Mm. The rape was not investigated, the first one, and the report that was filed came off as more of an inconvenience more than anything by the police that handled that case. Right, they probably just like wrote it down as somebody harassing somebody or something. Yeah, the way it was described in the articles was that it seemed like They barely wanted to do it in the first place, and it was like, uh, let's just get this over with. Peterson stated in a later interview, quote, I didn't go out looking for trouble. 
He was just headed home for the evening, and now, after firing his gun for the first time, he found himself delivering a fatal shot to the attacker, who now lay dead at the scene of his sexual assault. Panicked and terrified about what to do, and worried that he and his brothers were going to be misunderstood if they called the police, he was worried that they would just be looked at as three black men who killed somebody. Yeah. And with his previous experience of being both misgendered and disbelieved, he made the decision to take the body with his brothers, who were 14 and 16 at the time. Again, Kai is only 20. And they took the body and discarded it on the side of a nearby rural, rural road. Mm-hmm. Rural road. Rural juror. <laughs> so the next morning, he expected police to show up. And without a doubt, they did. He was sort of waiting for it to happen. Quote, I tried to explain my story to the police, and they didn't listen. And that was the main reason I attempted to cover up what had happened. Yeah. Peterson goes on to say, it was because I knew they wouldn't listen. That's just the way the system is. So when police initially questioned Peterson, he said that three men had jumped him, and that he acted alone afterwards in attempts to protect his brothers Mm. and to make the story seem more credible. Yeah. He worried that it would be hard for law enforcement to believe that a masculine presenting figure could be the victim of a rape. And that fear was obviously justified based on what happens next. Hmm. The police believed that he and his brothers were attempting to rob the man, (laughs) despite them being told repeatedly about the rape. And they bring all three to the station for interrogation. Hours later, Peterson was brought to a clinic for a rape kit. And the counselor said to him, quote, you don't seem like a rape victim to me. Something else must be going on. Wow. Mm-hmm. Chase Strangio, a staff attorney at the ACLU, says, quote, In so many ways, our conception of victimhood has always been taken away from people of color and taken away from gender nonconforming people and taken away from women. End quote. This sentiment is sort of echoed in who would be Peterson's public defender attorney, David Grindle's words. David Grindle told Peterson, who would be his first trans client, by the way, Mm -hmm. that he believed his account, quote, but just because I believe you, that doesn't mean that we're going to win in front of a jury. I mean, I think it's helpful to have like a realistic view of things. Right, right. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) Well, suspend suspend your judgment on on David Grindle for a minute. Okay, all right. The rape kit comes back positive, um, and his DNA has been found on the deceased man's genitals as well. Yeah. Ties. Yeah. So during further questioning over the next few days, Peterson revealed the truth of what happened, and that it had in fact been one attacker, and that his brothers did try to help him, which his brothers admitted as well. The one part of his retelling that always remained consistent from the first one was of the sexual assault. This man, who he shot, would later be identified as 29-year-old Samuel Chavez, whose sister lived in the same trailer court as the Petersons. Hmm. Um, He had evidently been in the area to visit with her, and she wasn't available. She wasn't home at the time. His record, by the way, includes second-degree assault, possession of a dangerous weapon with intent to injure, and resisting arrest. So, as we said, he was in the area to visit his sister, who was not home, and so instead, he was hanging out at the convenience store, getting drunk, by multiple eyewitness accounts, and his blood alcohol content, which was reported at .165. Peterson remained in county jail for over a year, without even being told what his official charges were going to be. Are you... Mm -hmm. What? Over a year. No. What? 
Mm-hmm. <sighs> he was encouraged by Grindel, who would become his attorney at the end of that year, to take a plea deal. The advocate reported that there exists a statute that every person arrested should be offered a meeting with an attorney within 72 hours of being detained. Yeah. Peterson waited a year. (laughs) February 27th, 2012, Peterson and his brothers Adam and Clarence were charged with crimes including armed robbery, aggravated assault, and malice murder, which could result in life in prison. Hmm. It's really unclear to me what becomes of his brother's charges. I've looked it up. I, I can't really find any information on it. Do we know if they gonna, were ever charged with anything? I don't think they were. Okay. And if they were, I think they took a plea because that was what Grindel encouraged Peterson to do. And uh, that's what Peterson ends up doing. So I imagine if he did this, similar things happened for his brothers. And I don't think they were given the malice murder charge or anything like that. Hmm. But... Peterson takes the plea for involuntary manslaughter, which has a maximum sentence of 10 years in Georgia. He took this deal, and the judge sentenced him to 20 years. Wait, wait, wait. But he... Okay, wait. Hang on. The thing he was charged with Mm -hmm. only carries a a maximum of 10, but the judge sentenced him to 20? That's correct. He takes the plea for involuntary manslaughter, which has a maximum of 10, and he was sentenced to twice the legal limit. Okay. Now, all of the documents, exactly, all of the documents show still that he pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter, as we said. Okay. But Grindel claims that there must have been an error, and he thinks it should have read voluntary manslaughter, and he thinks it's just a clerical error. And he claims that he was never expecting to get a plea deal for involuntary manslaughter in the first place. He would have been excited to. But he thought that would never happen, and he insists that it was probably just a clerical error, and that's how he got the sentence he got, and that it was supposed to read voluntary. And he says, quote, But if what the plea agreement says is involuntary, then I effectively committed ineffective assistance of counsel, and if that's the case, I apparently made a major mistake. Uh, okay, so are you going to fix it then? Right. Well, Grindle stated that this, you know, I wouldn't have went to fix that anyway because this could have led to us, you know, appealing. But they didn't appeal. And an attorney, uh, not related to this case, but someone who's spoken about it, an expert, her name is Tiffany Roberts, and she's an attorney in Georgia. She says that the likelihood of this resulting in any different outcome should they appeal was pretty slim and actually could end up in worse for Kai in the end, so she's not surprised that there was no appeal made. Because she believes that if a case like this appealed, then they would have tried to get a harsher sentence for Kai anyway. Hmm. Grindle was out of his depth with this case, and remembers telling Peterson that he had two strikes against him from the start. And this is Grindle's words of what he remembers telling Peterson. Hmm. He said to him, quote, Number one, you're African-American, and these little old white ladies in South Georgia think that if they see an African-American outside their own neighborhoods, they need to be careful. And secondly, he said that Peterson looked, quote, stereotypically gay, which he said, quote, factored extensively into my and my investigators' discussions about the case. Peterson claims that during the entire time he was represented by Grindel, Grindel visited him twice. He was never told that he could have used the self-defense laws that surround the Stand Your Ground statute down there. Uh 
and he feels that overall he was failed by his attorney and the system that continuously failed him even before this night changed his life. Yeah. Peterson was sentenced to Pulaski State Prison, which is a women's facility, mm. where he was misgendered daily, denied access to hormone therapy, mm. and discriminated against and abused. During his time there, he experienced repeated discrimination from guards and hostile treatment from fellow inmates. He reported incidents of being put on lockdown, which is like solitary, but not quite as what's often referred to as like the whole. Mm -hmm. um, he describes it as sort of being sequestered in a, a private area. He reported to his mother, Marlene, and also to his partner, Pinky, on multiple occasions that he was suffering with depression and being subjected to disciplinary action that felt targeted based on his identity. Yeah. In one article from The Advocate, which, by the way, I got, there are, The Advocate did a extensive amount of research and coverage of this case throughout, and I found, like, 10 of the articles that, um, that I read for the research on their website, and it, they, they did a great, great job with all of this, so. Good in job. In one article from The Advocate, yeah, really good job, like, incredible. They even won an award for it, oh, nice. so. Wow. Yeah. In one article from The Advocate, where his mother, Marlene, is interviewed, she reports her son being taken to a hospital on May 26, 2015, after being there for about three years, under what was initially suggested to be a suicide attempt. And she was told that her son had taken stockpiled meds. And she got this information in a private message from a Pulaski state member, I'm sorry, from a Pulaski staff member against prison policy, so she doesn't reveal who it was. Hmm. It took more than three days of her calling, visiting random hospitals in the area, and morgues for her to get any answers, because they just kept brushing her off. They said that, yes, her son was hospitalized, but they gave her no details. <laughs> the prison's eventual response to this was, quote, Kai Peterson's condition was not deemed as a critical state where the next of kin needed to be notified. <laughs> <sighs> Kai Peterson's situation is not isolated, and there's tons of fact-based data out there and research that show that there are alarming rates at which trans folks are incarcerated, particularly trans people of color. Yeah. yeah. A 2011 study by the National Center for Trans by the National Center of Transgender Equality and National Gay and Lesbian Task Force shows the following statistics. And I'm just going to read off a few of the ones. That, there's tons of information you can find out there. I have a lot that I'll put links to that I found, but I'm just going to give you some of the ones that were uh, more alarming and easily digestible. Okay. The percentage of U.S. adults that report time spent in prison or jail is 5%, and the percent of trans women is 21%. Mm. Trans men, 10%. And all trans and gender nonconforming folks is 16%. Mm -hmm. So all grossly different than just the national average. Yeah. When released, there's a lack of support in re-entry programs and highly restrictive probation and parole requirements for them. This leads to homelessness, unemployment, and a lack of health care. That then plays into the dangerous strategies of profiling trans folks and supports their reincarceration. Mm -hmm and keeps them back in the system. A system that is terribly oppressive, even more so towards them. 
This pervasive discrimination pushes transgender people continuously back into the criminal justice system, and there's a huge lack of any safe spaces for trans folks. Afterwards, reportedly 29% report being turned away from shelters because of their identity, and those who are able to find shelters, of them, 55% report harassment by staff and residents. Mm. One in five transgender people report being homeless, and many of this population turn to sex work. Mm -hmm. The criminalization of sex work is another way in which transgender folks are put back into the system. And of those polled, 44% of trans people who report participation in sex work in order to survive were black. According to a study by Lambda Legal, nearly one in six transgender Americans and one in two black transgender people have been to prison and felt the constant threat of sexual assault and discriminatory policies while they were there. Mm -hmm. From The Advocate, a 2011 report from Pennsylvania's Gay and Lesbian Latino AIDS Education Initiative found that 80% of that state's trans inmates were people of color, with 68% identifying as black, and many respondents listing themselves as mixed race. So... During my research, I also found stories of some other Black trans folks whose situations are all too familiar to one another Mm -hmm. and to Kai's. Mm -hmm. The ACLU attorney, uh, Chase Strangio, says, so if something happens to you, you have good reason to doubt that the police will help. And so for many trans people of color, and particularly Black trans people, Turning to the police can itself be a death sentence, as we've seen with so many black people in this country. Juan Evans, a black trans man, was pulled over for speeding in 2014 and accused by the police of lying about his identity. The officers demanded to see his genitals Mm. to prove himself, and when he refused, he was arrested Mm -hmm. and at the police station was referred to as it. C.C. McDonald, who Laverne Cox produced a documentary called Free C.C. Mm-hmm. about, I think, last year. Um, she also spoke out for Kai in all of her appearances for the Free C.C. Um, movie that came out, which is available on Amazon Prime. Haven't watched it yet because you have to pay and I'm <laughs> broke. <laughs> but um, so C.C. was with a group of fellow young black queer and trans friends in 2011 when they were attacked by a group of white adults shouting transphobic slurs. She was 22, and one woman struck her with a beer glass, slicing her mouth. One of her attackers and her were left injured and bleeding at the scene after the fight broke up. And because she defended herself, she was arrested and sent to an all-male facility for over a year. Mm. Notably, in relation to Kai's case, which I'll explain why in a moment, was the story of 36-year-old Ashley Diamond, a trans woman of color who was arrested on a burglary charge for bad checks in 2012 and incarcerated at an all-male Georgia state prison for three years for it. Oh, God. While there, she was denied medically necessary treatment, hormone therapy that she had been on for 17 years, Mm -hmm. and was repeatedly sexually assaulted. She describes in interviews that she was in a cell with a man who was serving over 200 years for rape. (sighs) She remembers upon arriving being stripped naked in front of all of her fellow male inmates and subjected to the humiliation and abuse by them and the guards from day one. Mm -hmm. In her words, quote, 
I hadn't been there 30 days when I was gang-raped and beaten, tied up in a sheet and left for dead. One guard showed her some kindness and snuck her his phone uh, routinely, letting her record brief videos about what her experience was like and then subsequently leaked them online, which was what garnered her a lot of public support and attention Mm -hmm. because nobody knew what was going on. And upon her release, she was interviewed by the Southern Policy Law Center. I'm sorry the Southern Poverty Law Center. Mm -hmm. And she said, I asked to serve my time safely and to be respected as a human being. Yeah, you can cut all my hair off, shave my eyebrows off. You can take away that care that was very detrimental. My body was completely reversed, but that person is still here. Because of her efforts, however, she was able to file a lawsuit against the Georgia Department of Corrections. She reached a historic settlement for an undisclosed amount in 2016. The U.S. Department of Justice declared that the Constitution requires inmates with gender dysphoria receive medical treatment, and the Georgia Department of Corrections updated their policies, and the SPLC reports, because of Diamond's case, dozens of transgender inmates across the state are now receiving hormone therapy for the first time since entering custody. Custody. They also say, the Georgia Department of Corrections also adopted a sexual assault prevention policy that is more closely aligned with federal standards and is in the process of training staff and prisons throughout the state on the health and safety needs of transgender inmates. Because of these changes, Kai Peterson received his first dose of hormone therapy on February 26, 2017, while incarcerated, and he has continued to move forward with these doses and his transition ever since. He also reported that he found a doctor and a counselor who affirm his identity and state, there are no words to describe how good it felt for someone to respect me as a human being. In 2017, Kai was denied parole until 2021, which he said he expected, but he didn't expect the length of time before being el- be- he did not expect the length of time before becoming eligible again to be so long. But the story does not end there. Luckily, does it get better from this point on? <laughs> it it does get better. Okay, good. On on July 27th of 2020, Kai Peterson was released. Yay. So a full year before he was supposed to be eligible for parole again. Okay. And all of the articles that talk about his release say it's unclear why this happened. But regardless, the release date was set and, and adhered to. And the good news is that he's out. He's free. That's awesome. Um. I was able to find that there were two fundraisers online that were made for him, and they were able to raise collectively over $44,000 as a homecoming care package for him to get him back on his feet. Yeah. Since being released, he and his partner, Pinky Shear, have founded the Freedom Overground. Uh, Pinky, I mentioned earlier briefly, but she has been an advocate for Kai since the moment he was incarcerated. She filed petitions repeatedly, worked on his behalf in the community, and while Kai was away, Pinky ran a blog where she would post videos and phone calls from Kai from the Pulaski facility, continuously updating the public on his situation and his fight. Pinky now serves as co-founder with Kai um, and programs director for the Freedom Overground. And their website, which is beautiful, by the way, like such a well-done website. Mm-hmm. I couldn't stop looking at it. It states their mission and vision as follows. Our mission is to ensure the safety and dignity of the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated, transgender, gender nonconforming, 
and LGBTQIA community. Freedom Overground serves to amplify the voices of the incarcerated by empowering them before, during, and after incarceration. Our vision is to actively decolonize the criminal justice system, creating a world where our services are no longer necessary. They've partnered with tons of grassroots organizations, and they formed seven pillars based off of the seven sacred teachings of the indigenous people. Mm -hmm. These being honesty, humility, wisdom, respect, truth, courage, and love. And they say that these, quote, are the basis for all of our organizing programs and community partnerships as we work to decolonize and ultimately abolish the prison industrial complex. On the website, there are lots of ways to get involved, tons of organizations they have paired with along with resources for trans folks, people of color, and those who are currently, have been, or know others who have been incarcerated and belong to these marginalized communities. There's lots of work to be done still, of course, mm -hmm. even in Georgia. Um, I found a video from Ashley Diamond's attorney that she is currently, or at least very recently, incarcerated again for a parole violation. And according to her, on behalf of Ashley, she's facing much of the same discriminatory and abusive practices and treatment that she did the first time. Mm. She's fighting again for her freedom and for systemic change. The advocate, as I mentioned earlier, was honored with an award from Planned Parenthood for their coverage of the Kai Peterson saga. Mm -hmm. And I'll end this with Kai Peterson's words on this. He said, I want to thank everyone who came across my story and just listened with an open heart, who are going to make a difference in another person's life. Sometimes a listening ear is all that is needed to save a life, but the voice gives strength and a reason to keep going when life gets hard. Hmm. And that is the story of Kai Peterson. Wow, that's so infuriating that <laughs> none of that had to happen. Uh, unbelievable and... Uh, I went on, so I was on The Advocate a, a lot. A lot of these articles were on there. And if you scroll down, which I don't know why I do this to myself. Oh, and why? read the comments. I oh, guess God. I, right. I thought, okay, I'm reading on a on a publication that supports marginalized folks. Right. And so I'm assuming, presuming, <laughs> hoping that the people who are reading this and ingesting this material are... Of a certain amount of um, decency, moral integrity. Yeah. yeah. And I forgot that publications like this link to like Facebook, uh -huh. you know, for the comment section. And boy, was I disappointed in some of the things that I read. Yeah. Like all people could focus on or what a lot of the people that were on there who were white men could focus on were, oh, but, you know, he hid the body. So he's guilty because he had the body. And uh, no one cared about the rape. From the rape kit he got that came back positive. Right. You know, it was like completely missed mm -hmm. and wasted on. And someone wrote like, I know people like this. It's like, what do you, what is that even? <laughs> very frustrating, very infuriating. I mean, I read a lot of beautiful things too. A lot of the videos I watched of Pinky Shear um, were very inspiring to see all of the people who spoke out for Kai, who continue to speak out for Kai. And Kai is thriving now. Like, if you look at pictures of him, 
He's happy. He's doing really well. The Freedom Collect, the Freedom Overground, has done a lot of really great things. If you go to their website, they have a list of the work and the successful endeavors they've already had. They were able to get someone fired from the prison facility um, that was misgendering and treating Kai poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they investigated her, this person that was fired, she was responsible for nine deaths oh at the prison complex. Okay, so I mean, they're doing a lot of great work and a lot of great things have happened. I mean, Ashley Diamond, despite being back in jail, she her case was landmark Mm -hmm. and made people take notice. And no one would have expected, including her attorney, that they were going to have their success they had with it. Yeah. So that shows some progression, some growth. And uh, but it was very disheartening to read about all of these other folks stories that were so similar to Kai's and worse. And to read about the treatment of trans women at these all male facilities Mm -hmm. was I mean, could you how is that okay (laughs) to put a woman in a cell with a man? And the way she described it in an interview was so like it's just so clear, like this man was put in prison for rape. Right. The last woman he saw was the woman that he raped. And that's the last woman he saw. And you're going to put a 100-and-something pound woman in a cell with a 200-something pound man who's serving over 200 years for that. Right. And what do you think is going to happen? Right. And that's okay. You know what I mean? Like, Mm. how is this the kind of treatment that human beings deserve? And... And it just, where do you see this on the media? Where do you see this getting reported? Yeah, nowhere. Right? Where do you hear these people's names if you don't look for it? If you're not looking at these, like, out and queer, like, a lot of the websites I found were, like, um, them.us or, um, you know, lgbtmap.org or... Right. Not, like, CNN or... (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the videos I was watching that were covering Ashley Diamond's case were a little bit more mainstream, mm-hmm. which was which was nice. And um, I do want to watch this free CC documentary. Um, I think Laverne Cox does a really great job yeah. in advocating for trans people and getting these stories out there. Yeah. But it's not enough. You know, it's it's not obviously not enough. Yeah. Well, great job. Thank you. You know, it's a heavy topic, but I feel like this is kind of what I want to, this is part of why I wanted to do this podcast in the first place, was to be able to, like Kai was saying, like, sometimes a listening ear can save a life. Right. And I hope that, you know, all of the listening ears that listen to this podcast, um, you know, can be, can be that for somebody, maybe. Yeah. Well, how would you rate the episode? Um... The episode alone, I found, like, for watchability, it was an entertaining episode. Okay. Um, I'll give it a B. What about you? I mean, I like Elaine Stritch. I didn't love the rest of the episode, but it wasn't, it was one of, okay, <laughs> I will say, like, sometimes when I'm recapper, I, like, sit there and I'm like, oh my god, there's 20 more minutes left of this. But um, I didn't really feel that as much this episode, so I guess I would give it a B. Nice, nice. What about for how for it the, dealt with stuff? For the crime, I'm gonna give it a 
I'm going to give it a D. Okay. A D plus. I'll give it a D plus because as I said, it's not a narrative that exists yeah. really. Yeah. And I hate when this gets put out there in a, in a compelling storyline. Right. Because yeah. it's the kind of thing that people then ingest and they're like, oh yeah, this is the kind of thing that happens. Right. You know, people are crying wolf. Yep. It's like kind of ridiculous. And they, they threw this weird mob angle in. Yeah, that's that's very common too. A mob <laughs> hires a random woman at a, and tells her to go to a bar, and 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 this is the way they do it. This right. is yeah, this is how how the how mobs work. Yeah. So I'm gonna give it a D a D plus maybe. Yeah, I'll give it a D plus. I think I would agree with you on that. I'll give it a D plus as well. But the episodes are getting better. <laughs> They're getting more entertaining. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll see. We. <laughs> Hey everyone, if you enjoyed listening to this and you would like to show your gratitude, we would love it if you would write us a review and subscribe to our podcast. Yes, and the second best thing you could do is to recommend our podcast to a friend because you have good taste and people respect your opinion. Our social media is Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and our email is rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. We absolutely love getting email from you, so feel free to just send us a note, even to just say hi. That's right. And our website is rippedheadlinespod.com, where you can find the link to our merch store and our Patreon, where we recap episodes of Law & Order SVU. Also, a percentage of our Patreon proceeds get donated to the Equal Justice Initiative. So by supporting us, you're also supporting positive change in the world. Thank you for listening to Ripped from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We will see you next week, and until then, stay out of the headlines.